The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and... Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. The story goes that a Texas cattle rancher was visiting Australia and was startled because he noticed something strange with every farm he passed. There were cattle herded on every farm, which was, of course, normal to him, but the one thing he didn't see was any fences. All this cattle and no fences. So finally, he had to figure out what's going on with this Australian strategy. So he walks up to an Australian cattle farmer and says, hey, uh, in Texas, on a Texas cattle ranch, the, the fence is everything. The, the, the fence enables the whole operation to function. The fence is what keeps the cattle together. Why don't I see any fences? And he also said, you know, it's very expensive back in America to build these fences and to maintain these fences. It's basically a full-time job. So why don't you give me your secret about how to have cattle without fences, and I'll go back to America and we'll make two wealthy men. And the cattle farmer replied, in the outback, I'm not going to do the the accent because that would ruin it. But he said, in the outback, we don't use fences, we use wells. See, in the outback, it's an arid climate. There's not much water beneath the surface. And so the cows, the cattle, even if they wander off a little bit, they're never going to wander off far enough because uh, far enough to not be able to find water. They're always going to stay close to the well, and that's what keeps them together. Well, in our passage this morning, we see the danger spiritually of when a man-made fence, a fine thing in itself, but a man-made fence so becomes the point that what gets neglected is the well of God's word. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, as we enter this chapter, there is a pretty dramatic shift in mood 
Mark wants us to kind of feel this shift as we've gone from miracles of Jesus now to this discourse with the Pharisees. Mark wants us to feel the contrast at the beginning of this chapter, the contrast between what came at the end of chapter 6 and what's here at the beginning of chapter 7. It's, it's meant to feel abrupt. At the end of chapter 6, what had Jesus provoked? Wild popularity. And here at the beginning of chapter 7, what does he provoke? Deep hostility. We're just going to look at the first 13 verses. Next week will be part two. But here's what I think in these first 13 verses of Mark chapter 7 is the main idea. Beware of using religion to disobey God. Beware of using religion to disobey God. And that will mean in your life at least two things. It will mean at least, it will mean guarding against at least two things, which are my two points this morning. First, beware of legalism. We'll see that in verses one to five. And second, beware of hypocrisy. We'll see that in verses six to 13. Beware of legalism, beware of hypocrisy. And in so doing, you will rightly beware of using your religion to disobey your God. First, beware of legalism. Verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem. Now, pause there. These religious leaders aren't just getting out of the cramped city to breathe some cool Galilean air. This is not a vacation. They are on a mission. This official delegation has made the, the long 90-mile journey north to, uh, from Jerusalem to Galilee to investigate Jesus. And this is not the first time they've made this trek. Remember back in chapter 3, the, the last time they had made this trip, they had concluded that Jesus was possessed and empowered by Satan, which prompted Jesus to warn, uh, there's a sin that's unforgivable and you are walking dangerously close to that abyss. Now, if you weren't here for that sermon and the, and the idea of the unforgivable sin has led to angst and consternation in your own heart, then you can go back and listen to that sermon, Mark 3, 20 to 30, on the unforgivable sin. But the point here is that it, it didn't go so well the last time the Pharisees sent an official delegation to investigate Jesus, but here they are again. Verse 2, we read, they gathered around Jesus and saw, and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Unwashed hands. <laughs> it's, it's not lost on me that I'm preaching this in the year of our Lord, 2022. I, I feel like verses like this take on new meaning ever since March of 2020. But it's important to realize as we read a verse like this that, that it's not talking about hygiene. I mean, we, we, we shouldn't read this verse and have our hearts really go out to the Pharisees because it's like, yeah, we know what it's like to have kids who won't wash their hands before they eat. This was not about hygiene. This was about holiness. This was not about uh, that the disciples were physically unclean. That wasn't the objection. It, it's the, the Pharisees are saying, no, your disciples are ceremonially unclean. That's why verse 2 doesn't say, their hands are dirty, Jesus. It's their hands are 
defiled. It's a religious word. In verses 3 and 4, Mark then includes a parenthesis in, in which he explains this common Jewish practice to his Roman readers, who, many of whom wouldn't have been familiar with it. So, verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Verse 5, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? The key thing to notice here is, is not just the pervasive attention to ritual and ceremonial purity, but the reason. They're doing so. They're, they're holding tightly to this ceremonial purity because they're, quote, holding to the tradition of the elders. That is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court at the time. And this should be our first clue that something's a little off because their objection is not, hey, Jesus, your disciples aren't obeying the Bible. They're, they're not obeying the Torah. No, it's, Jesus, your disciples aren't obeying, obeying the tradition, the oral tradition of Israel's current leaders. Now, is there anything wrong with tradition? No. In fact, tradition can be a good thing in its proper place. Is there anything wrong with promoting religious purity? No. Read the Hebrew Scriptures. A holy God is very interested in religious purity. Is there anything wrong with being zealous for the law? No. Jesus was zealously devoted to God's law. I think a lot of Christians, when they think of a legalist, they just think of someone who takes God more seriously than they do. That's not legalism. Legalism is not zeal for God's law. Legalism is adding to God's law. It's, it's assuming that someone can be right with God if they keep your rules and traditions. See, the problem with the scribes and Pharisees here is, is not that they are too zealous, but that they're taking permissible things, hear me, friends, they're taking permissible things and making them obligatory things. They're, bi they're binding people's consciences with practices that are not prescribed by God's word. I'm also, again, aware it's 2022, so it's not lost on me, that we are living in a pressure cooker environment, not only politically and culturally, but also within the Christian world. And, and I'm not going to just discourse on the, the state of evangelicalism, but I'll, I'll, I'll simply say this. I think one thing that has fallen on hard times in our cultural moment, one thing that's fallen on hard times and has been a casualty amid many Christian squabbles is liberty of conscience. Freedom of conscience. See, it's very easy for believers, even with the best of intentions, to add to God's word by requiring things of others that he, God, does not. Did you realize that it's actually, arguably, the oldest sin 
the oldest human sin in the book? I want to show you what I mean. Turn with me way back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve are living in perfect harmony with God and with one another and with the created world in the Garden of Eden. And we read this in verse 16, Genesis 2, 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So what's, what's the verb that shows up that's, that's really the, kind of the heart of the prohibition? Well, it's the verb, shows up twice there, eat. You must not eat. When you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now turn to chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Do you hear that? History's first act of religious legalism. Adding to God's commands and therefore, in so doing, distorting God's character. Making him out to be what? Stingy exacting, opposed to our joy rather than a God who delights to give us a garden full of pleasure. In Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ, which is probably the most helpful treatment I've ever read on the topic of legalism, Sinclair Ferguson, The Whole Christ, he observes that the most sinister thing about legalism is that it ever so subtly separates the law of God from the person of God. The, it separates the law of God from the character of God. It diminishes his love and therefore makes him out to be less generous than he actually is. Ferguson writes, quote, It's commonplace to say that one can have a legalistic head and a legalistic heart, but it's also all too possible to have an evangelical head and a legalistic heart. See, the serpent slithers in and plants a doubt in Eve's heart about her maker's character. And in the very next moment, what is she doing? She's misquoting him. She's putting words in the mouth of God because her heart has started to believe that lie, that devilish lie, that God may not be so kind and generous after all, that God may be withholding something good from her because he doesn't love her, because he's against her. You can turn back to Mark 7. You know, it may be easy for a church plant like us to read a passage like this 
and kind of, if we're honest, feel immune to its danger. I mean, for crying out loud, we're barely six months old. How, how could we, of all churches out there, be in danger of this kind of straitjacket of legalism and traditionalism? But beloved, we are not immune to this danger. We, we are not exempt from this passage's challenge, especially as theological conservatives, which we don't apologize for, but as theological conservatives, we care about absolute truth. We care about right and wrong. So it's worth us reflecting how the Pharisees got to this place. I mean, the Pharisees didn't just wake up one morning and suddenly decide to become legalistic. No, I, I, I suspect it began with pretty good intentions. We don't want people to break the law of God. We have such a high view of God and of his law. We don't want people to break it, so we are going to build a fence around it, an elaborate fence to make it easier for people to obey his law. Slowly but surely, though, of course, the fence became the point. Not the well of God's word. The fence became the point. But I think there's another reason why the Pharisees constructed this elaborate fencing around God's law. And it's simply this. It made obedience more manageable. Listen to how Tim Keller explains this dynamic. Quote, Specific rules are always easier to obey than broad principles. By creating a hundred minor procedures, it becomes possible to feel you have fully complied and feel righteous for doing so. For example, when the laws love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself are broken down into 300 regulations, all the emphasis shifts to outward conformity and external behaviors. A legalistic approach actually gives the law less weight. A legalistic approach actually gives the law less weight. To, to concentrate on lots of specific rituals is to distract from the real point and to keep us from seeing the depth of our sin. See what he's saying? He, he's saying it's, it's possible. In fact, it's not just possible. It's very tempting to so focus on external conformity that you don't have to do any business with what's inside. You don't have to wrestle with what's best in an unclear situation. You don't have to filter various options through the, the, the wisdom of God's word and godly counsel because everything is kind of decided and spelled out for you. This impulse to go beyond God's word and spelling everything out not, not only threatens you as a Christian and us as a church in kind of displacing gospel grace from its rightful center, but it also threatens to infantilize you. I, I couldn't think of a better word to use. Infantilize you as a Christian. What do I mean by that? Well, it keeps you from growing in maturity. A mature Christian, friends, is someone who understands that there's the realm of biblical law and the realm of biblical wisdom. 
And one mark of spiritual immaturity is that you take everything that should be in the category of wisdom and you treat it as if it's in the category of law. See, that's the shortcut for an immature heart. It's to treat all wisdom issues as if they're law issues, to eliminate the gray, to make life easier. I mean, if the, if the danger of theological liberalism is treating everything as gray, the, the danger of religious fundamentalism is treating nothing as gray. If theological liberals take what is black and white and make it gray, fundamentalists are in danger of taking what is gray and making it black and white. Martin Luther once said that the devil doesn't care which side of the horse you fall off as long as you don't stay on. So how do we avoid this as a church? Well, I think that one way is by cultivating a healthy practice of what's been called theological triage. Theological triage. So stick with me for a, kind of an extended application here, but I think it's really important for the life of our church and the life of any church. Theological triage, is, well, the word triage is coming from the medical world. Uh, some of you will know that in, say, an emergency room, someone who comes with a broken arm uh, might be first in line. But then if someone is coming in behind them that's un, you know, experiencing cardiac arrest, you better believe that they're going to treat the more urgent case first. And it's the same with doctrine and theology. There's a sense in which not all beliefs are created equal. Not all have equal urgency and weight. And so as good theologians and as wise church members, we have to engage in this kind of theological triage. To just be really brief with it, we, we could think about first rank, second rank, and third rank issues. First rank is those things that you have to agree on in order to be a Christian. Second rank are those things you have to agree on in order to worship at the same church. So, so that would encompass things like your view of baptism and church government and so forth. Third rank issues are those things that church members in the same congregation should be able to disagree about. And it's going to be okay. And again, the danger for theological liberals is, is to treat everything or most things as if it's third rank, but the danger for fundamentalists is to treat everything as if it's first rank. A five alarm, fire kind of issues. And, and this is one reason, friends, listen to me here, this is one reason why our statement of faith and our church covenant are documents that we take really seriously here. They're not just meant to sit in a file drawer or look cool on a website. We intend to put these documents to use here in the church. Now, what is that? What, what is dusting off our documents? Statement of faith, what we believe, church covenant, how we promise to live together. What does all of that have to do with what I'm talking about in terms of theological triage in this passage in Mark 7? Well, just think about this. When I say statement of faith, church covenant, to some of you, that actually might sound like the very kind of traditionalism that Jesus is warning about. I mean, shouldn't we kind of get rid of that, those kind of rules and things that would restrict us? And of course, any good thing can be 
misused. But the reason we believe in regularly, as I said, dusting off our documents, putting them to use, referencing them in sermon applications, confessing them corporately when we take the Lord's Supper, is to protect congregational unity and to promote individual Christian liberty. Rightly used, our church's statement of faith and church covenant will protect congregational unity and promote individual Christian liberty. One thing I like about our statement of faith is, is that it's not so exhaustive that an undiscipled Christian couldn't join the church. You don't have to have a master of divinity degree in order to join our church. It's not that exhaustive. But on the other hand, it's not so mere that there's little we're actually standing for. But we refuse to divide over things we've never agreed to agree on. We refuse to divide over things that we've never agreed to agree on. See, by codifying certain doctrines in the statement of faith and promises in the church covenant, we are crystallizing both what members must agree on and where they're free to disagree. This encourages confidence in the essentials and freedom in everything else. Now, this is not to say I, I'm called as the, as the main preaching pastor of this church to preach the whole counsel of God. This is not to say that in preaching that we will avoid so-called debatable matters But it is to say that we have no authority as a church to bind members' consciences where we've agreed, as reflected in our documents, God has not clearly spoken. We can't bind members' consciences where God has not clearly spoken. This is exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing 2,000 years ago. I told you it was going to be an extended application. I'm not done. Bear with me. I hope you're having as much fun as I am. Listen, this is counterintuitive, but it's so important to internalize. One way to preserve sound doctrine, you want to be a church that cares about the truth? You want to be a church that cares about sound doctrine? One way to preserve it is by leaving ample room for Christian freedom. Otherwise, churches can easily succumb to legalism by requiring agreement on third-rank issues. But by, as it were, lowering, remember I used the illustration a few weeks ago of turning down the volume on God's voice? By lowering our collective voice as a church on things where Scripture is not clear, say a specific political policy proposal, by lowering our volume on that, because God's volume isn't very loud, we can therefore raise our voice and raise our volume on issues where he is clear. This is why liberty of conscience is so critical in an age of outrage in particular. As Mark Dever has observed, leaving space for disagreement on many matters other than gospel clarity is in part what keeps the gospel clear. When we lack a a clear understanding of Christian liberty and 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 space for conscience, we will be tempted to stick more into the gospel than is there. To demand more of people than God demands of them in Scripture. That is, agreement on a wider variety of issues. Oh, RCBC, let's forge unity around the things where Scripture is clear and avoid division around the things where it's not.
the importance of liberty of conscience doesn't just apply to our doctrines and our promises and our practices, though. It, it even extends to the most practical daily decisions. For example, what should a godly Christian hus- husband do with $100? Should he give it to a missionary? Should he give it to meet a practical need in the church? Or should he take his wife out for a steak dinner? Mike, I think that point was for you. (laughs) The answer, of course, is that it depends. It depends. It may be the most godly and right thing, the the wisest thing, and therefore the godly thing for this husband to do, to spend that $100 to take his wife out for a dinner, just simply to honor her, not to mention the fact that it could help to re-energize their marriage and enable them to do even better ministry and hospitality down the road. That's why we just got to be so careful because if we're honest, we all have expectations. They're often unspoken, but we have expectations for what a wise Christian looks like. We all have our little templates for what a really godly person will do or not do. But if it is not clear in Scripture, it is not our job to show up and supplement God's voice. Beware of legalism. Number two, and more briefly, beware of hypocrisy. In the rest of our passage, Jesus brings to the witness stand, as it were, the law and the prophets. And he starts with the prophets. Moses and Isaiah, verse 6, Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. This is a direct quotation from Isaiah 29, 13, written 700 years before this encounter. And Jesus is taking that blistering indictment and he's aiming it at these religious leaders. I should just Note in passing that, that if, if you're turned off to Christianity because you don't like religious hypocrisy, then you should meet Jesus Christ because he hated it a lot more than you do. I'm not aware, in fact, of a sin that angered Jesus more than this one. And so he minces no words in this rebuke. What's interesting about the word hypocrites here is that it, it's not what we most naturally think of when we think of hypocrisy. At least this week, I was thrown for a loop a little bit because when I think of hypocrisy, I think of the, the distance between someone's words and their actions. But that really wasn't the problem for the Pharisees. They were all about the right actions. So this version of hypocrisy is not so much the distance between their words and their actions, but the distance between their words and, Jesus says, their hearts. They were all about external devotion, but Jesus is throwing the spotlight on that darker chasm. He's saying, essentially, in Isaiah's scroll that you're so well familiar with, that you've mastered, there's a mugshot there, and you fit the description. When it comes to talking super spiritually and acting super spiritually, yeah, sure, you have no peer, but it's a facade. You're not religious leaders. You're religious phonies. 
you're religious phonies and you are in the professional business and there's a lucrative market for it here in first century Israel. You're in the professional business of worthless worship. Notice he says they worship in vain, not you're a little misguided. No, it's worthless. And the reason it's worthless worship is verse 8. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, verse 9. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. You are great at maintaining the fence. You have a fine way at tending to the intricacies of your fence. But you have no idea that the well it's meant to protect, the, the, the well that was there first, has fallen into utter disrepair on your watch. Beloved, the application for us here is soberingly simple. If God doesn't have your heart, he doesn't have you. It's that simple. If he doesn't have your heart, he doesn't really have you. Yes, we're a church that takes doctrine seriously. We take corporate worship seriously, but let's not be a church that engages our minds in worship without also engaging our hearts there's a danger of becoming professional Christians, professional worshipers, professional ministers. But it's possible to have false worship that is completely professional and entirely empty. Kids and teenagers, this is a word for you as well. It's not just mom and dad that need to come to heart, come to church ready in their hearts, eager in their hearts, hungry in their hearts to listen and to learn and to obey. You are not too young to follow God. If you're listening to me right now, if you're old enough for me to have caught your attention right now, then that means you're not too young to bring your heart to God. After all, that's what he cares about. I know it can be so easy in our daily lives at school and our sports teams and even in church to kind of think that what really matters is how we look. And, and I know you're, you're, you sit there with your parents and they care about how you look. They want you to not distract others. They want you to behave and to sit still and to stand and to sit at the right times and to worship. And that's important. But what finally matters is what's going on in your hearts. Are you worshiping? Are you adoring? Are you praising your Savior along with us in the songs that we sing, in the prayers that we pray, in the sermons we hear. And parents, we're not exempt from this challenge either. As, as John Piper once said, the greatest stumbling block for a child in worship is a parent who doesn't. May that not be true of us. Jesus' focus on our interior lives, by the way, is why our church covenant includes that uncomfortable promise that I prayed about in the pastoral prayer. We will pursue transparency with each other, resisting the temptation to hide our struggles and sins that we might experience the grace of God in the care of his saints. 
I alluded to the joy of living in the light in that prayer. I'll just add Proverbs 28.13. Proverbs 28.13 is a, is a promise you can take to the bank. Whoever conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Here's how the Apostle John puts it in 1 John 1. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. Some of you this morning have not yet been purified from your sins. And the reason, ironically, is because you're trying to purify yourself. But the wonder of the gospel, the reason we exist as a church is because we have a message, we have news, not good advice, but good news. And that news is that you don't have to purify yourself in order to come to God. No, you come to God and then he purifies you through the blood of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the work he does for you and in you, for you in Jesus, in you by the power of the Holy Spirit every day of your life until you meet Jesus face to face in the age to come. In that, that Proverbs verse I mentioned, notice it said, whoever confesses and renounces their sins obtains what? Mercy. Some of you have yet to obtain that mercy. And that's because you are in the midst of one long spiritual self-improvement project. But we're here to tell you this morning, I can tell you on the authority of God's word that he loves you, he made you to know him, and that no matter how much religiosity you have on your moral record, it's not enough. The scribes and the Pharisees had more religiosity on their record, and yet their hearts were miles away from the Lord Jesus's and from God's. Just because you're a churchgoer, just because you do religious things and you know some Bible verses and you have know the words to some Christian songs does not make you right with God. The way you get right with God is by turning away from your sin and by putting your trust in the one who lived and died and rose in the place of spiritual rebels and false worshipers. Only he can change your heart. The danger is that we're always looking, we're tempted to look to something outward to measure up, to, to feel okay. But the reality is that we raise and lower that bar, don't we? we? We often raise it for others and lower it for ourselves. I think a question worth just reflecting on and talking about in your home groups this week is, is what is more concerning to you? What animates you more? What what get you more kind of lathered up? Is it the behavior of others or the condition of your heart? Oh, may the Lord spare us from having a fault-finding spirit here at RCBC. I've said this before, but we, we want to be a church of people that are easy to please and hard to offend, not hard to, hard to please and easy to offend. 
verse 10. So Jesus here pivots to give a practical example of a human rule that had come to the point where it had displaced a divine law. Verse 10. For Moses said, so here's his for example. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. Anyone who, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is korban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. What in the world is this? Well, there was this oral tradition called korban that was essentially a form of deferred giving. People could pledge upon their death money or property to the temple treasury while still keeping it for themselves for their whole lives. And so it was this kind of vertical vow to God that functionally could exempt you from horizontal responsibilities, such as caring for your aging mom and dad which is another way of saying breaking the fifth commandment. Look again at the beginning of verses 10 and 11. Just hear Jesus' voice here, the, the withering critique in his voice. Verse 10, for Moses said, verse 11, but you say. Talk about a contrast. Jesus is like, Moses spoke for God, you do not. Verse 13, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus is not opposed to traditions as such, but to traditions. He is opposed to traditions that enable people to sidestep what Scripture clearly says. And it's possible, he's saying, it's possible to use religion to avoid God. It's possible to use religion to disobey and keep your distance from God. Well, In conclusion, in his excellent theological study of Mark titled The Cross from a Distance, Peter Bolt well summarizes what we've seen, I think, in this gospel so far. Quote, Jesus is not just a reformer of a basically good system that's in need of repair. He is the Messiah, and his arrival spells an entirely new stage in God's plan and purposes for the world. In other words, he has not come to fit into our way of doing things, but to bring us into his. It's like what we saw way back in chapter 2, if you remember that, what Jesus said about the unshrunk cloth. Don't think you can keep your old garment of religiosity and tradition and just sew on a grace patch. Just add a little Jesus patch. No, he's saying my agenda will not be merely sewn on to any merely human program. I'm not just here to tinker with your religiosity. I'm here to upend it. I'm here to transform it. And friends, because this is what he claimed to do, see, if Jesus had just come to tinker with religiosity, you would never have heard of him. But he didn't just come to do that because he came to upend the whole system. The Pharisees had traveled 90 miles north to come investigate him and to catch him doing wrong. But that wasn't the only mission going on because before long, Jesus is going to return the favor and he is going to make the long journey south. 
to their center of operations in Jerusalem. It'll be for the purpose of letting them have their own way. The culmination of their scheming ever since that evil huddle Remember that evil huddle back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6? Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, who until like right then were their enemies, to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The Pharisees weren't on vacation. They were on a mission. And Jesus, too, is on a mission, a mission to indict false worship, yes, but ultimately, friends, a mission to die for false worshipers. You and me, who have lived our lives by putting on appearances, but God sees straight through the heart and offers the only solution we need. Beware of the slithering, whispering, tempting allure of legalism adding to God's word and the hypocrisy it spawns, which is another way of saying, beware of using religion to disobey the Lord of love. Let's pray. Lord, this is a confrontational passage. And if we are feeling confronted, if we're feeling unsettled, maybe that's the feeling of idols being uprooted in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who does feel confronted and unsettled by this passage, that they would not leave this place as a false worshiper, but they would bow their knee to King Jesus and that they would live lives, not just of religious devotion, but live lives in which their hearts are engaged with you because you are the most valuable treasure in the universe. Help us to be a church that prizes you and adores you above all things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.